All right, Joel 2, and we stopped at verse 7. I think we covered it, but we'll pick it up again. Joel 2, verse 7. We're looking at the prophetic uh, things in this book. Joel 2, verse 7. They shall run like mighty men. Here he's been talking about these supernatural locusts. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war, and they shall march everyone on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks, neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. Now that's something supernatural. You can fall on a sword and not get wounded. Well, it's obviously not a uh, human. We fall on the sword, we get wounded. Sorry. <laughs> but especially a locust. You ever seen a locust fall on a sword? <laughs> no. <laughs> but whatever this locust is can fall on a sword and not get wounded. Something supernatural. Mm-hmm. Job, Job chapter 33. These locusts are you and I, we're the army that comes back at the second advent with Jesus Christ. Job 33, verse 18. God's in control of this. He says in Job 33:18, He keepeth back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. God controls the power of life and death. And when we come back with him, nothing can hurt us because we're in his army and he's decided nothing can hurt us. It's that simple. <laughs> Joel 2, go back to Joel 2, look at verse 9. Joel 2, verse 9. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. Now, that's a weird way for God to describe his people. A bunch of thieves. <laughs> but that's exactly the description he uses. He's been suffering the theft of this world and the devil for nearly 6,000 years at that point. And then he says... Okay, I'm done. I'm going to give you a piece of your own game. I'll be the thief this time. Look at it in Matthew 24, verse 43. Matthew 24, 43, the Bible says, But know this, if the good men of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. That's a passage there talking about the tribulation. And Jesus Christ is going to show up as the thief. And he says, you're not going to be ready for me when I show up. Jesus Christ describes himself as a thief. You remember in the garden, when they come to him in the garden, he says, who'd you come out looking for, a thief? Now, he's not saying I'm a thief, but the implication is there. He will, it, look at Revelation, Revelation 16. Revelation 16, verse 15. Jesus Christ telling you about himself. He says, behold... I come as a thief. Doesn't get any more clear than that. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. In 1 Thessalonians it says this, For ye yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord also cometh as a thief in the night. Well, if thieves and robbers can be malicious and destructive, they don't got nothing on God. He's seen all their tricks, and he'll up them. 
<laughs> when he comes back, it's bad news. Joel 2, verse 10. Joel 2, verse 10. Here he's describing the advent. Armageddon. Joel 2, verse 10. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. The stars shall withdraw their shining. That's how powerful God is. When he comes back, he, he makes everything that he's created fight with him. He's going to use the sun, the moon, and the stars to do battle as well. Uh, in Revelation 6, verse 12, I'm going to move fast. You're not going to be able to turn to all these. Just listen up and you can get the notes if you want to. Revelation 6, 12, it says, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. Over and over, God tells you, I like to use earthquakes. <laughs> and he does. He uses them in battle. In Revelation 8, 5, he says this, And the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. <laughs> Always that earthquake connected. Revelation 11:13, he says this, In the same hour there was a great earthquake. If you miss that, you need to read your Bible through again. Over and over, it's an earthquake. And it seems like they keep getting worse. They keep changing the Richter scale. keeps going up higher and higher. Because one day it's gonna, he's going to do an earthquake that that little scale won't be able to measure. In Revelation 11:19 it says this, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in the temple the ark of his testimony. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. You know what happened? He said, I'm going to let you take a look up in here in heaven. And when he looked into heaven, just prying heaven back just enough for him to take a peek in, it caused the earth to quake. That's pretty scary. Revelation 16, 18, it says this, And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as, uh, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And this is where he destroys Babylon. Babylon goes down. Its final destruction is through an earthquake. Joel, back to Joel, Joel 2, verse 11. Joel 2, verse 11. Here's the commander-in-chief, the, the top general, giving orders in the battle. Joel 2, verse 11. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Mm. This army that he's got coming with him is an army. It's the body of Christ. We've gone out at the rapture. We're long gone from this earth. The earth has been going through and following the devil's leader, the Antichrist, and he can't give them what he's promised. He makes a covenant and then he breaks it. And they follow the devil just like they've been secretly doing during our time. They'll be doing it openly then. And God's going to come back at Armageddon and he's bringing us back with him. And it's time to fight. In Song of Solomon 6, verse 13, Here's the army that comes. Song of Solomon 6.13 Return, return, O Shulamite. Now that's a Gentile. That's what you and I are. We're Gentiles. Well, until you get saved. <laughs> well, once you're saved, you're not really a Gentile. You're the, the body of Christ. You're church, the church of God. Uh, Shulamite, return. Return that we may look upon thee. What will we see in the Shulamite? As it were, the company of... 
two armies. There's two armies coming back with him. An Armageddon. Two armies follow. One will be those saved under grace in our dispensation and the Old Testament saints that are up there. Two armies are going to come back. They're going to ride on different animals. You'll find that mules will be the, the mode of transportation for the Jews. The Gentiles will ride horses. Let's find it in the Bible. Judges chapter 5. Judges 5 verse 10. It was forbidden for the Jews to ride horses. That was a thing of the Egyptians. Judges 5 verse 10. Speak, ye that ride upon white asses, ye that sit in judgment and walk by the way. Okay, that's what the Jews did, was they rode on white asses. And uh, you find David had a mule, David's mule. Uh, that's how they, uh, they, Solomon was um, coronated on, a, on David's mule. When Christ returns, he's coming back, and he's going to have some people that sit in judgment with him. Yeah, those in what you saw right there in Judges was they were called uh, judges. Ye that sit in judgment and walk by the way. Those are governors. Matthew 19, he talks about them. And then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? <laughs> that almost sounds like an American. What's in it for me? I've done all this work. <laughs> Where's my payoff? Jesus answers, verse 28. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So there's going to be some judgment given to those uh, twelve disciples. In Revelation 20, verse 4, he says this, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their forehead, nor in their hands. And they lived and reigned, reign, that's judgment. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now when he says a thousand years, he li really, literally it means a thousand years. I mean, I'm, that's hard to understand, isn't it? <laughs> You'll find people that don't believe that. People will tell you that's just meaning a long time. Well, no, he said it too many times for you not to be able to understand. I would hate to get to the judgment. And him say, hey, I put it right there three times. How come you were telling people it didn't mean that? Yeah. I mean, I'd rather fault the other way. Him say, hey, I didn't really mean a thousand years. He said, well, that's what you said. I mean, wouldn't you be better off that way? <laughs> Let's go with what he said. <laughs> so when Jesus returns, he comes back with two groups. One of them's going to ride these white horses. Revelation 19.14. Uh, 19, Revelation 19.14. It's clear when you put all the pieces together, first time, maybe a few times through your Bible, you might not see them all, but the more you go through it, the more you'll see. Revelation 19.14. And the, what is that word? Armies, that's plural, because there's two. Which were in heaven, followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Uh, look at back up to verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is, right, is the righteousness of saints. 
Now, the crazy thing is, white would not be a good color to wear into battle, you know? You, you, you'd think if you were going to pick a color, it would be, I think red would be a good color. It would hide that you're bleeding. <laughs> but he wants to see it. He says, I've dipped my raiment in blood. He wants to see it. That blood speaks to him all the way back in the beginning of the Bible when Cain and Abel had their little disagreement. <laughs> um, Revelation 7, look at verse 14. Revelation seven fourteen. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now that's something unusual. Blood is one of those hard things to get out. You get a stain. You get, we, we know. We do upholstery. And you're always cutting yourself. And if you're working with white, that's not good. Because <laughs> you're going to get it on there. And there's very few things that will get it out. But God says, my blood is so powerful. You can wash your dirty raiment in my blood and it will come out white. Pretty good. Good thing. Revelation, uh, let's see now. Yeah, 19. 1914. Revelation 19.14, I think you've read it before, but here he's talking about these armies. And they too have these white horses and they've got clean white linen on. Linen is righteousness. Now, you and I probably don't have enough righteousness to fill a miniskirt when <laughs> we get up there. But you'll notice the Bible says that to her was granted that she should be arrayed. That is, it was a gift from God. After the judgment, after your works have gone through the fire, he's not going to force you to appear in whatever you had left over. Because that wouldn't reflect good on him, would it? What kind of husband would that be if he couldn't provide you something to wear? No, he's going to grant us fine linen, the righteousness of the saints. It's going to be his righteousness. It'll be on display. Psalm chapter 68. Psalm 68, verse 23. There's something about this. God has been sitting in heaven and seeing his children mistreated, persecuted through the years, all of this that's been going on, and there's no doubt he's fed up with it. <laughs> By the time it comes down to the end of things right here, not only does God destroy his enemies, he wants us to participate. Psalm 68, verse 23. That thy foot may be dipped in the blood of thine enemies. Now, don't try that now. <laughs> Wait until God says do it. Okay? And, thy, uh, and the tongue of thy dogs in the same. Habakkuk 3.15, he says this. Thou didst walk through the seas with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. That's a prophecy. Now, I'm... It's happened in the past, but I don't have time to go through all that. <laughs> but that's a prophecy of what's going to happen. He's going to walk through the great waters that are above the heavens when he comes down. And he's going to come through the atmosphere. He's going to land, and Armageddon is going to destroy all his enemies. Joel 2 through 11, of course, is describing 
these glorified bodies that we'll have to, to fight as his armies. In 1 John 3, 1 John 3 verse 1, this verse now, after having seen all of these gory details we've seen so far, this verse has a new meaning. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, just like locusts. <laughs> but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. In Philippians 3 says this, Who shall change our vile bodies, that it might be fashioned like unto his glorious body. So we got a change coming. And that change not only is just for glorification, but it has a purpose. It's for fighting. And he says, I'm going to fix it so nobody can hurt you. And we're going to go do some fighting. <laughs> Romans 8, verse 29. Romans 8, verse 29. This is a, a good verse that you could take a half hour and explain why Calvin had it wrong, but I don't have time to do it. Romans 8, 29. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, what do we know about Jesus Christ? When he came up from the dead, he could walk through a wall. He walked. They were. Up, they had the windows and the doors locked in the upper room, hiding out in Jerusalem, and he just walked right in. And he ate like a normal person. Something supernatural about that body. But that he says right there, we're gonna get one just like it. That's gonna be exciting. Back to Joel. Joel two verse twelve. Joel 2, verse 12. He's been lowering the boom on them, telling them bad times are coming. <laughs> he was Joel Osteen's nightmare. <laughs> His name was Joel, but it was a different kind of Joel. <laughs> Joel 2, verse 12. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Could you? This just blows my mind. If you've been paying attention, sometimes you've got to slow down when you read through the Bible so you see what it's saying. But up to this point, it's been heavy hangs over your head. And then all of a sudden, it's like he does a 180 and he says, the Lord's gracious and merciful. That tells you no matter how wicked and bad you are, it's a good time to turn to God. And he'll, when you turn to him, it'll be better off for you than if you don't. Amen. Psalm 51, verse 17. Psalm 51, 17, the Bible says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. We think of a sacrifice as something that costs you. Well, the first sacrifice that, that needs to be done is a broken and a contrite heart. The most expensive thing that you value probably is your pride. 
when you get rid of that one, you've, you've really suffered. You've uh, sacrificed something. Psalms 107, verse 22, the Bible says, And let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. That's a tough sacrifice. Thanksgiving. That's not when it's easy to thank somebody. It's easy to be thankful. It's not a sacrifice. But when everything's going bad and you can find a way to thank God anyway, that's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That one's worth something. In Mark 12, verse 33. Mark 12, verse 33. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Well, that's a good place to start. You know, the Bible is a great place to look for some chores so you don't get bored in life. <laughs> the next time you go through it, say, God, give me some chores to do. And he will. Here's a good verse right here. He just gave you a list of things to do, and he says, these are better than all those things that were made so much of in the Old Testament. All whole burnt offerings. Philippians 4.18, it says this, But I, Paul talking, I have all and abound. That ain't me. No, <laughs> I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Sometimes a sacrifice to another person, he says, is considered something that's acceptable and well-pleasing to God. Now this was, Paul was in prison. He hadn't been getting any supplies. Nobody was bringing him anything or sending him anything. And this church was sending him some stuff. And he says God's well-pleased with that. So, as Christians, the Bible says do good to all men, especially them that are of the household of faith. So, if you can give a dollar to the bum on the side of the street, you can give two dollars to your brother in Christ. And it doesn't have to be, y'all don't know me, but it doesn't have to be the church. The church needs your money, but not, not as much as God needs your service. And sometimes he'll point out to you who needs it before it'll be the offering place. A lot of times it will be. It'll be the person you see or the need you see. Not always money. Let me tell you that. Sometimes the best thing you can give somebody is an ear. Just listen to them. Talk to them. Find out what's going on. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, it says this, But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. you got to look at that verse. That's a tricky and a convicting verse. Now remember, we're talking about a sacrifice. You talking to somebody you enjoy talking to is not a sacrifice, is it? So he's talking about something that's going to cost you. There's people you don't want to talk to, isn't there? Sure. Talk to them anyway. <laughs> he says to do good and to communicate. Don't forget to do that. Because with that kind of a sacrifice, God's well pleased. Okay, let's get off of that. It's getting too convicting. Back to Joel 2. <laughs> Joel 2, verse 13. We'll pick up the last part of the verse. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. This is nothing new. The prophets have all said this same message. The main theme of the Old Testament is repent. Matter of fact, it's the main theme of the New Testament. <laughs> repent. Moses says it 
In Exodus 34:17, he says about God, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. You know what? People, people misunderstand that. I know they think that that means he's coming in the third and fourth generation to beat them to a pulp. He's visiting. That means you get an opportunity to repent. He didn't have to visit. He could have destroyed you without even thinking. So he shows up. He's going to give you an opportunity to repent. Manasseh says the same thing. In Second Chronicles thirty-three nineteen. it says, His prayer also, how God was entreated him and, and all his sin and his trespass and the places wherein he built his high places and set up groves and graven images before he was humbled. Hmm. So wickedness gets God's attention in the wrong way. The one thing he does is he knows how to humble us, buddy. <laughs> He's good at humbling us. But a lot of men refuse to be humbled. And when you get two forces like the wind, I've been amazed. These big, huge, heavy-duty, mean-looking trees that have been around for 300 years... <laughs> And this little storm we had, I've been through worse storms. But this little storm we went through, it was knocking them down. Amazing. That's a picture of what God does when a man bows up against him. He knocks him over. Uh, Jonah had the same thing to say in Jonah 4, 2. He says, And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was in my country? Therefore I, lifted, I fled before thee to Tarshish. He's mad because he walked into town and he said something. He said, look, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Now, you and I think what a mean man that was to come in there and tell them they're going to be destroyed. Okay, the whole town repents. He didn't say repent. He didn't say there's an option for you to get out of this. He just simply said, here's a fact, Jack. Y'all are going down. <laughs> then they repent, and they get right. And Jonah says, I knew you would do something like that. <laughs> well, now, if you and I had been Jonah, we'd have thought the same thing. Because you know what the sign of a prophet was? If he prophesied a thing and it came true, he was a true prophet. If he prophesied a thing and it did not come true, he was a false prophet. So no wonder he was having a little problem. <laughs> but this is the fact. He knew that's who God is. If a man will repent, God will be gracious. But if a man doesn't repent, you get, uh, you get Nineveh 2.0. That's in the book of Nehemiah or uh, Nahum. Nahum. I got to keep moving. Um, we're not going to finish this, but we'll try. Second Peter three. Second Peter three verse nine. says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's one of the great hindrances nowadays in dealing with somebody. Because they say, well, God didn't really mean that, because I know some wicked people who've lived wicked for 40 years, and God didn't do anything to them. Hmm. No, that's him. what he did do. He did something to them. 
He gave them space to repent. And then when he does destroy them, they'll go down quick. The Bible says in Proverbs, either being often reproved and hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. That's exactly what Joel's preaching to them. He's telling them about the end times, the day of the Lord, which will be the second advent. I've got to stop it there um, because I'll go too long. Joel 2. <clears throat> now, we covered uh, verse 12 and 13, but we'll start there for context and get to our new verse, verse 14. Joel 2, verse 12. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, return ye unto me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Our new verse, verse 14. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God? <clears throat> so what he's saying here is there's been a drought, there's been some sort of crop failure, and things have been dried up, so they couldn't bring any offerings. And so he said back in verse uh, 12 of chapter 1, the vine is dried up, the fig tree languishes. You remember all that? So there wasn't anything they could bring for an offering. So he's saying maybe after God's done destroying everything, he'll drop us some good stuff that we can take to the temple to offer. <laughs> That'd be nice. Now, that's practical. Now I'm going to run to doctrinal, and it's going to get heavy. <laughs> he says, verse 14, the first phrase, Who knoweth if he will return? Well, we know he's going to return. But he also returns in the tribulation. He'll be there twice. So we're going to cover all of these big, heavy theological terms and put them, I believe, where they belong. There are people who hold fast to one position or another. They'll be, uh, they believe in a pre-trib rapture, a mid-trib rapture, or a post-trib rapture. I think all three are correct. You have to get them in the right order. There's uh, amillennial, postmillennial, all of that stuff. We'll cover it all in detail and get the Bible on it. Revelation. The first thing we'll notice is there is a, there's an unknown hour that Christ comes. And when he talks about this stuff, he's not talking about our rapture. We know that's unknown. But what he's referring to here in Revelation has nothing to do with the church age. Nothing in the book of Revelation is church age. Nothing. You'll find people who put it in the church age. The first four chapters are not church age. I know for years and years, and the way I was taught was it pictures. Okay, well, you can get pictures out of anything. But the fact is, if you go through Revelation chapter 1 to 3, they have to do works for salvation and to keep their salvation. That's not church age. That's something in the tribulation. Revelation 4, verse 1. <clears throat> this is, of course, John the Baptist and nobody else. <laughs> nobody goes up with him. Revelation 4, 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Now, that's the way a rapture does happen. He says, Come up hither. Now, it's not a rapture because he's the only one that leaves. <laughs> and he's already in the Spirit. He's already uh, not on earth. 
But this is a good picture. He shows us some details here. Look back at ver uh, chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10. Here's the context of this supposed rapture. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, we've been through it so many times that you recognize the word the Lord's day. It doesn't mean Sunday. It means the second advent. That's how you date the book. The present tense of the book of Revelation is the advent. Things past are the tribulation, the seven years. Things future are millennium and eternity. No church age in it anywhere. Look at uh, verse 19, 119. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So that's your pre past, present, and future based on the Lord's day, the second advent. Now you get into trouble when you start <clears throat> monkeying around with the word the Lord's day. It means a single day. That's Armageddon, the advent. The day he comes back and physically claims this earth. Um, <clears throat> look at another interesting thing. Chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Ten days. So they get ten days of tribulation, as, if, as though they only have ten days. I think what he's referring to here is on our chart, <clears throat> it's going to go ten days into the great tribulation, is what he's referring to. Uh, I believe the churches are beginning at the beginning of the tribulation. And they're going to go another ten days into the great tribulation and then be raptured out. And we'll continue on. Uh, chapter 3, verse 3. Remember therefore how thou hast uh, received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Okay, so somebody's not aware of the ten days. But here's the thing. This is still an unknown thing. He's given them peace of mind by telling them ten days, but I doubt anybody knows when day one started. So they, they're going to have trouble trying to calculate something. Now, after they leave, it'll be easy to calculate, and I'll show that to you in a minute. Chapter 16, verse 15. Well, anybody in the tribulation? Anybody trying to calculate when he's coming? So if you were in the tribulation, I believe the churches um, are both Jew and Gentile. Um, and I mean, it's when, when Paul's writing here, he's not writing to Jews. That's Asia Minor. Those are Gentile. Um, so, you know, that's not necessarily a, a Jewish thing there yet. Look at chapter 16, verse 15. <clears throat> He says, Behold, this is Jesus talking, Behold, I come as a thief in the night. Or as a thief. I'm adding words to it. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So somebody's supposed to be watching because he's going to show up secretly and they're not going to know. 
And so we're told there's an unknown appearing, and in a minute we're going to be told there is a known one. Find it again, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verse 43. Matthew 24, 43. But know this, okay, let's know it. <laughs> that if the good men of the house had known in what hour in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken in uh, broken up. <clears throat> well we understand that. What he's saying here is when a thief shows up, he's not on a schedule, or he's on a schedule that you don't know about. <laughs> and he's talking about himself coming as a thief. He says the same thing, I'm not going to read it to you, almost word for word in Luke twelve, thirty nine to forty. Look at Matthew 26, Matthew 26, 55. Matthew 26, 55, I think we mentioned this last week. It says, In the same hour said Jesus unto the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? Uh, I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hand on me. And he says the same thing in Luke 22, 52. So early on, you start seeing Jesus using this thief comment to, about himself, and then it shows up in Revelation as a description of how he shows up. Revelation 6, verse 9. Revelation 6, verse 9. It says, And when I had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. Uh, given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Okay, so they're waiting here for something to take place. They have other folks that are going to join them <laughs> under the altar. Now, this shows you a difference in this dispensation and ours. When we die, we show up in heaven or hell immediately. When these die, they are in a holding position. This is what the, is it the Church of Christ teach. Who is it that teaches soul sleep? I think it's Church of Christ. Jehovah Witness? Soul sleep. Well, here it is right here in the Bible, but it's not for our dispensation. They're under the altar, and they have to wait there until a specific time. These are trib saints, and they're under the altar. The Old Testament saints uh, did something similar. They went to Abraham's bosom. They had a place they were held until Jesus made the payment, and then he took them out. Well, things are going to reverse again in the tribulation. Revelation 7, look at verse 9. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations, kindred, and people, and tongue, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palms in their hands. Okay, so obviously the souls under the altar have now been or, uh, raptured because they're in heaven at this point. So something happened. I say there's a mid-trib rapture. I put it right here. And you can 
you can boggle your mind trying to work through this thing. I did it for a month. <laughs> I went through trying to figure this thing out. I say they go up right here, uh, the mid-trib rapture right here, just the other side of the Great Tribulation. Now, when we say mid, we don't mean exactly three and a half years. Um, so these people are in heaven now, but I'll tell you who is not there. The 144,000 are not there. Okay, the 144,000, I say, are the... <clears throat> oh, wow, Mr. Stigall. <laughs> I say what happens is this. The tribulation starts. Six and a half days after the beginning of the tribulation, the two witnesses show up. The reason it has to be six and a half days is because they lie in the street dead for three and a half days. Then they're resurrected. I think they all go out at the same time, right here. Now, it's not the 144,000. The 144,000, I believe, are their converts. And I'll say they come in here, and I'll show you that to you in a minute. This is heavy stuff, I told you. <laughs> uh, Revelation 7. Um, no, I told you wrong. That's a good one. You can put your finger there. We'll be there in a minute. Go to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 10. Okay, what is this chapter about? Anybody know off the top of your head? Matthew 25, that's the, the ten virgins. Five are wise and five are foolish. They do different things. Matthew 25, verse 10. And while they went to buy, that is the foolish ones went out to buy more oil, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in to, uh, with him this is important, to the marriage, and the door was shut. So, I say for three and a half years, we've had the judgment seat of Christ in heaven. At the end of the three and a half years, we have our marriage in heaven, the marriage supper. And so this is the ones that get to go in with him to the marriage. They're not being married. He only marries one, one chaste virgin, not five. These are friends of the bridegroom, correct. Um, now go back to Revelation 7, verse 4. Revelation 7, 4. Here's this 144,000. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now it turns real Jewish. From here on out, the book is heavy influence on Jewish. Uh, so we're verse 4, 144,000. Verse 9, there's people in heaven, but it ain't the 144,000. They just got sealed. So they've still got to do their ministry. Uh, look at uh, verse 13. Revelation 7:13. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? Well, they were stuck under the altar, and they jumped out. Verse 14. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, I got no clue. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation. So the mid-trib can't be 
before the Great Tribulation. I say it has to be after, and I've given you the, the numbers on how it just barely makes it over into the Great Tribulation. He says clearly, Great Tribulation. Uh, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Okay, so this group comes out of the great tribulation and they probably get raptured out with the two witnesses, I say. The two witnesses we know prophesy for three and a half years. Now, that, I'll just show it to you in the Bible. Revelation 11, 3. Revelation 11.3 And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Now, that's how many days? That's three and a half years. You can do the math. It's a 30-day month because they're on a Jewish calendar now. So, um, notice what he said. He didn't say they would be around for three and a half years. He says they'll prophesy. That's how long their mouth is moving, prophesying. What happens after they quit prophesying? They quit prophesying because somebody chops their head off. Okay? So then you can't prophesy. But guess what? They're laying there for three and a half days and then they pop back up. Doesn't say they say a word. They just leave. Everybody freaks out. <laughs> Look at Revelation 11, 11. After three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entereth into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell on them which saw them. I guess so. <laughs> so there you can, you can mark that. You can go home and work on all this. I'm not going to say anybody's a heretic for taking a different viewpoint on this than me. And it took me many, many years to come to the one I have. And I'm not necessarily married to it. If somebody can show me something I'm doing wrong, I'll change it. So, I mean, this is tough stuff. Um, that church in Revelation 2.10 has been told 10 days of tribulation. These witnesses here, I believe, started with the tribulation at the beginning and went three and a half years prophesying, died for three and a half days, and then they're all leaving at the same time. Okay, that's the mid-tribulation rapture, as I see it. There's also a post there's also, by post, I don't mean after. <laughs> it's just the terminology people use, so I'm using the same terminology. I mean there is another one. Now, this one I'm not real sure about. There's 144,000 still on the earth. The reason I say there is a post is because we know these are leaving before. They don't endure to the end. They leave. They get raptured out. If somebody else goes with them, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Y'all figure it out. <laughs> this will be... Um, okay, Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 36. Luke 12, verse 36. And ye yourselves, like unto men, not women, that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding. Okay, what we saw earlier 
was five virgins that didn't get to go and the wise ones got to go to the wedding. These right here are talking about uh, men that are waiting for the groom to come back from the wedding. Okay, so that's obviously after. That when he cometh and knocketh, that they may open unto him immediately. I got it in uh, Malachi 4. Malachi 4, verse 2. Malachi 4.2, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Okay, so that's going to be the millennium, going forth and turning into a cow. Uh, <laughs> no, a lot of people who've already started. Uh, he, he, the cross-reference for this, <coughs> the cross-reference for this, nobody gives you correctly. I don't know why. Here's the cross-reference. Hebrews 9, verse 28. Hebrews 9, 28. <clears throat> so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now, I understand because of the first half of that verse they say, first coming as a baby versus second time, second advent. You're in the book of Hebrews. There's no Christians in the book of Hebrews. I know that's going to blow everybody's gaskets too. Hebrews is written to Jews. Hebrews. And if you go through Hebrews, it's not church age doctrine. All the if statements that are connected to your salvation. And we don't have any ifs connected to ours. So I say the second time is there's coming a second he did appear once here to take him out. And he's going to come back a second time for those who are looking. And we'll see somebody looking in a minute. Uh, Revelation 14. Revelation 14, 1. <clears throat> and I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having the Father's name written in their foreheads. So here's the hundred and forty-four thousand, verse two. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their strings. And they sang, and they sung, they sung, I would say sang, sung. They sung, as it were, a new song before the throne. Okay, so that's in heaven and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were, past tense, not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. First fruits is always a reference to a rapture. You find it again in 1 Corinthians 15. So now the 144,000 are in heaven, and that's going to be just before the fall of Babylon. Look at it in verse 8, Revelation 14, 8. I know it. <laughs> and there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, 
that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So, these 144,000 are not under the altar, so they must have been raptured out. They're in heaven. It could be that these are the only ones that go, but I don't think so, but maybe I'll leave that up to a possibility. I think there's others that are looking, and he'll show up the second time, and they get to go out. Revelation 7, verse 9. Here's something that is not said when we saw the 144,000 in heaven. There's something a little different than when we saw the last group in heaven. Revelation 7, 9. This was the mid-trip. And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations. When it talked about the 144,000, it didn't tell us about all nations. And kindreds, and people, and tongues. So, maybe it's just 144,000. They're from one nation, and they got one tongue. <laughs> maybe. Y'all figured it out. All right, now let's see what else the Bible has to say. James, chapter 5. James 5, verse 11. We've got some Old Testament pictures according to God telling us these are pictures, not us making it up or eating bad pizza and dreaming these are pictures. <laughs> that can happen. You've got to be careful with making pictures out of stuff. Um, I mean, you've got to make sure the doctrine is there first and strongly stated before you make a picture out of something. Hopefully I'm not doing that, y'all judge. James 5, verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord. Wouldn't it say the end of Job? No, the end of the Lord. That the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. You wouldn't feel that way if you were in the tribulation, in the great tribulation. And somebody's going to endure to the end and recognize exactly what it said in the verse. They'll see the end of the Lord and they'll recognize it as being merciful and pitiful on them because they made it through. Another example he gives us is in verse 17, James 5:17. James is another book that's not written to Christians. James tells you right from the beginning to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. I'm not a tribe. <laughs> James 5:17. Elias, that's Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Now, I think that's very interesting because never in the Old Testament, if I'm wrong, y'all find it. I can't find it. Never in the Old Testament does it tell you three years and six months. It just says three years. Here you find out it's actually three and a half years. Because it's going to picture something, the tribulation, a half of the tribulation. Now, he put two examples in there because there are two three-and-a-half-year periods of the tribulation. And they each picture something different. Let's see it. Elijah pictures the first half of the picture, and he's actually going to be there. Moses and Elijah. He's one of the witnesses. He'll picture that first half, and he'll be raptured out. Just as the tribulation saints who are looking for Christ like we saw in Matthew 25 and in Revelation 14. Uh, they'll, be picture, they'll be pictured as that uh, example he's using of Elijah. The other example he gave us was of Job. 
Job is different. He's not raptured out. Job pictures the Jews that endure to the end and receive the kingdom. Job received double after enduring the tribulation that fell on him, never having to leave his property. He stayed right there and endured to the end and got double. And that's what somebody's going to do. That's all those verses that say endure to the end. Somebody's going to have to. That's what Job is going to picture. Let's find some more of Luke 17. The thing about Job is he's got uh, 42 chapters, which is 42 months, which is 42 years. Um, There's a lot of stuff. Job is a great picture of the Great Tribulation. Uh, Luke 17, verse 28. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Okay, I say that's a picture of the mid-trib rapture. Lot gets taken out before the bad stuff comes down. And um, so somebody's going to endure ten days of tribulation, and then they're getting out. And then some, the rest of them has got to go right on through it. Look at another example he gives us in verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noe, that's Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. Okay, so this is Noah. Noah's a different situation than Lot. Lot got yanked out before the bad stuff fell. Not Noah. Noah went right through it. He endured the whole um, flood that God was sending on this earth. Now, he was protected in an ark. Just as somebody in the tribulation, I say the Jews, are going to run to Petra and be protected for three and a half years, but they'll stay here and endure to the end. Okay, so that's your pre and your post, and you can work on it and mull on it and correct it and tell me how to do it. Okay, so that's two of them. The next thing that's important is Armageddon. That's the, that's the day of the Lord. And this is a known day. He gives you the, how to figure up the numbers. Daniel 12, verse 12. Daniel 12, verse 12. There are Jews that will see... The Antichrist go into the temple and declare himself God, and then they can get their calendar out because he gives you over and over the numbers to count. Daniel 12, 12. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. So he's actually given them a time frame to start counting to. There's, I'm not going to get into it. There's two numbering systems that are found in Daniel. And uh, if you want a mind-boggling teaser, figure those out. And then tell me how you did it. <laughs> Revelation 12. Revelation 12, verse 6. Revelation 12, 6. And the woman, this is typifying Israel as the nation. The woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that's Petra, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Get the calendar out, start marking it off, that's all the time you got left, and then the advent comes. 
Daniel 9.27, he says this, And he shall confirm the covenant, that's the Antichrist will, uh, with many for one week, that's seven years. And in the midst of the week, three and a half years down the road, uh, he shall cause the sacrifice of oblation to cease. That is, they've been sacrificing in the temple, and he's going to say no more. And for the overspread of abomination, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consumption. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Uh, Matthew twenty four thirteen. Matthew twenty four thirteen. A Jew that's been studying his Bible in the tribulation and missed it, he'll realize he missed it. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> he'll realize he missed it when the church goes out at the midpoint. Now, by church, I don't mean church age. I mean the churches that will be in the tribulation doing different things than we do. Uh, and then he'll get his calendar out when he sees the Antichrist sit down and know how long he's got to endure until the end comes. Matthew twenty four thirteen. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. So there's the hope for the Jew that missed it the first time around. Mark thirteen thirteen, basically the same thing. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. That's not to go to heaven, that's to stay on earth. The Jew's not looking for an opportunity to get to heaven. This is going to be his heaven. He wants millennial reign of Christ on earth and the Jew to be on the top of the heap, just as it was promised all the way back in the beginning of the Bible. Um, Let's uh, cover this quickly. Exodus 19.11. Exodus 19.11. I'm starting with the picture, but this is pictorial, so uh, take it or leave it. You figure out what to do with it. I, I think I've got it right. <laughs> of course I would. I wouldn't tell you something that I thought was wrong. Exodus 19.11. And be ready against the third day. For the third day, the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Now, that's a fact, and he did do that. But he's going to do it again because we know how to calculate days. There's a way the Bible says to calculate heavenly days or spiritual days. The third day is going to point to three days after... Israel rejected their Messiah. I know they were rejecting him the whole time, but it is finally cemented in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, they reject Stephen's opportunity he's giving them to accept the Messiah, even though he was gone. His whole sermon is, accept him. And when the Sanhedrin says, no, we're not going to do it, then that age closes and a new one begins. So, three days. That'll be 3,000 years. Hosea 5. Hosea 5, verse 15. Now, you recognize this as God saying this, but imagine Jesus saying it, and you'll put it right in the right place. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, seven years of it, they will seek me early. 
chapter 6, verse 1. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, I guess so, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. There's coming a day he will. Chapter 6, verse 2. After two days, after 2,000 years, how long has it been? It's been two days, 2,000 years, almost. Now, people have said this, and I think dated it wrong. The 2,000 years, I don't believe, begins at the cross, nor do I believe it began with his um, birth. I believe it began with Stephen in Acts 7. So you calculate 2,000 years from there. Nobody can do that because we don't understand the calendar anymore. It's been changed so many times. I mean, you can get close and you can have your own guess, but I don't think anybody's going to hit it. Okay? I mean, you just try the best you can. So 2,000 years from Stephen Stoning. Let's assume the calendar is correct. That would put it at Jesus uh, died at uh, year 34, 33 and a half, so 33, 34. Then Stephen is one year after. That is the parable of the fig tree. Is it the fig tree? Yeah, where he says, uh, chop it down, dung around. No, don't chop it down, dung around it, and give it one more year. If it bears fruit, fine. If not, chop it down. Okay, that's the nation of Israel. And that's exactly what he did. He gave them one more year with the opportunity of both Peter's message in chapter 2 of Acts and then Stephen's in chapter 7. And when they officially, all of the ruling party of Israel, reject him, then they're cut off. And so 2,000 years from that date would, let's say, 37 approximately. So 37 plus 2,000 would be 2,037. That puts you at Armageddon. Okay, subtract seven years, and that should be where our rapture is. Now, I don't know. Y'all figure it out. Play with it. And do your own math. Now, he, doesn't, he says you won't know the day or the hour. Now, I'm sorry. That doesn't refer to the rapture of the church. When he's saying the day or the hour, it's in reference to this right here in the tribulation. Um, Paul says in Second Thessalonians that you yourselves know well the day or the hour. So he says the times... You don't, you're not ignorant of, and I don't have to tell you about it. So we should do some math and be working on it. Okay, uh, Hosea 6, verse 2, he said, After two days will he revive us in the third day. So that would be in the millennium. He will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Yep, because he'll be on earth, and they'll be in his sight. Okay. That's uh, Armageddon, the day of the Lord. I say the day of the Lord is not a period of seven years. It's one day, and it's probably a matter of hours. <laughs> but it's one day. The only time you could say it's not one day is if you had Bible reason to do that. What else does he call one day? One day is also called Second Peter 3, verse 10. One day is also called a thousand years. Some people believe in what's called a post-millennial rapture. And here's... I don't know if they see this or not. They, they, they've got all kinds of things messed up. But 
This is where they could have put it had they had a brain. Second <laughs> Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements uh, shall melt with a fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burnt up. That ends the millennium. That's how the millennium ends. It gets burnt up. And he creates new heaven and new earth. In the millennium, he didn't create a new heaven and a new earth. We're looking for that, and you notice what he called it? The beginning of the verse, verse 10. The day of the Lord. Single day. But here it can be 1,000 years. Look at verse 8. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So there he's telling you, plainly, from the context, when I'm saying day of the Lord this time, I'm talking about the millennium as one day, because it is literally 1,000 years. Ezekiel, see how it ends, Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38, verse 2. Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against them. Now, this is, this is a wild thing right here. He's telling Ezekiel to prophesy against something that's not going to happen for 3,000 years. This is crazy. In the millennium, you cannot prophesy. In the millennium, if your son or daughter prophesies, you're to thrust them through with a spear because they're there to deceive. Anything God wants to say, he's right there in person and he says. So this prophecy is going to stretch a long, long time. Now the reason it can be done like this is because this Gog, Magog, Tubal, and Meshach, all that, those are going to be spiritual, I think, principalities. Uh, let's find it in the Bible, Revelation 20. You'll find people who will tell you that Gog and Magog happen all kinds of places. Right now, lately, I've been seeing a lot of people tell you that Gog and Magog happen either before the tribulation or they're a war that happens in the tribulation, before Armageddon. The Bible's clear about where it happens. Revelation 20, verse... Seven. And when the thousand years are expired, okay, that's millennium, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went upon the breadth of the earth and compassed the, uh, the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire, not hell, uh, of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. The end. <laughs> so that's how it ends up. It's, all, it's almost like it's continual circles that keep happening. Millennium ends almost the way the tribulation ended with Armageddon. But now it's called Gog and Magog. Um, 
And so, but that's called the day of the Lord also, but there you can have biblical reason for calling it the day of the Lord because in the context, he says a thousand years equals one day. I'm going to show this to you in one other place. The Bible tells you this. People will say, you'll hear this, don't base a doctrine on one verse. Okay, let's get two. <laughs> Psalms 90, verse 4. Psalms 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. So there he said it again. Now that's probably where Peter learned it from. Because <laughs> David was giving you something. Now David is called a prophet in the book of Acts. So David is prophetic, and there he's telling you about the thousand year being considered one day. Okay, now any questions, comments? That's a whole lot right there. <laughs> okay. Work on it, mull it over, see what you come up with.